portions of the following program are transcribed. From Hollywood, NBC brings you Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper, who daily reports to 30 million readers in America and eight foreign countries, now reports to you on the air. Here is Hedda Hopper's Hollywood. From the desk by the window, looking right down on Hollywood and Vine. Hello, everybody. I'm going to let you look over my shoulder while I write my column. You'll get fresh news of interesting and famous people from Hollywood and elsewhere. And we'll visit with Helen Broderick, Broderick Crawford, Humphrey Bogart, and the newly elected national commander of the American Legion, Earl Cox Jr. And a story about the opening of the new musical show, Red, White, and Blue. Okay? Let's go. Judy Garland, despite reports to the contrary, will not replace Mary Martin in South Pacific when Mary goes to London. Judy's turned down $10,000 for one TV show and 50000 for a concert. Mrs. Dan Daly tells me there will be no reconciliation. As soon as they've worked out a property settlement, she'll sue for divorce. Last Sunday at the Everett Crosby home, the entire Crosby clan met for dinner. And at the request of Mama Crosby, the whole family, all 25 of them, sang together for the first time in 32 years. Bing and Dixie sang a duet, and then were joined by their four sons. Music ran the gamut from sacred to popular songs. Then Mama Crosby left with Bing and Dixie for their home in Pebble Beach. Gene Simmons and Stuart Granger, who announced their engagement in Hollywood yesterday, would love to get married in America within the next three weeks, but cannot because of income tax complications. You'll remember Gene as Ophelia in Hamlet. Theodore Roosevelt III has given his approval for a picture based on the life of his famous grandfather, Teddy Roosevelt. Titled, Father Was President. If you remember that family's life in Washington, you'll know what a picture that can be. The children even rode their ponies inside the White House. Sam Goldwyn, in a Denver speech the other day, made the following statement. An actor owes but one obligation to the public, and that is to give the best possible performance before the camera. In other words, Sam believes that the private life of an actor is his own affair. Well, I disagree with Sam's statement. I always have disagreed. I believe that living in a glass house imposes on you a certain standard of behavior. Of course, Sam's statement is not original. It was given its greatest publicity and impact by a man who not only feels that way, but has lived that way. A man who has given us many a look into that glass house. Oh, Patsy. Yes, Miss Hopper? Is a man out there? I'll say there is. Humphrey Bogart. Yes, I'm here, and I've heard everything you said. But you know that statement about an actor's responsibility, uh, I didn't originate that either. Robert Morley said it, Jack Barrymore said it, Mort Adams felt it, Daniel Froman... A bogey, I've always thought a columnist had an unfair advantage. A monopoly in the soapbox. And today I intend to do something about it. I'm going to move over and give the other side a chance. Well, I never heard of anybody giving up a monopoly. A bogey tape on your boxing gloves and slug out a defense of that statement. <laughs> you and other rugged individualists are so fond of. You bet I will, I don't be... Oh, brother, this is going to be rough. Bogey, let me finish what I was going to say. My own statement about what I believe an actor's responsibility to be. I believe an actor owes everything to his public. Uh, for instance, Bogey, I believe in a morality clause. 
Those few pungent words in practically every actor's contract that gives his studio the right to fire him if his behavior is such as to throw discredit on his picture, his studio, uh, yes, and his industry. Eddie, you're talking about morals, aren't you? And not about actors stating their views on politics. Of course I'm talking about morals. It's so much more interesting. Ah, how right you are. Besides, we never get anywhere on politics, you being a Republican and me being a Democrat. But talking in morality clauses, that's the spot I'm on. As you well know, I've got two jobs. I'm I'm an actor, I hope, and uh, I'm a producer. I, and I'm I a hope. good producer, too. In a lonely place was a fine picture. But as a newborn producer, as well as being one of Hollywood's stormy petrels, what are you going to do about... Morality clauses? Well, I, I, I don't expect any actor who works for me to be either a plaster saint or to pretend he's one. You understand, of course, this is a, it's a matter of degree. I certainly don't want actors to behave like Jack the Ripper or Bluebeard. Although, well, they must have been interesting. But if you think I'm going to ask actors to behave like John Doe's, then no, I'm not. You don't care if they take pandas tonight, Clark? <laughs> I'll let them pick up their own mistakes. Besides, I, I thought everybody but you had forgotten. <laughs> yes, Bogey, and besides, it wasn't important in the first place. Nor is taking a drink. Or even defending yourself in a row, if you have to. But how do you know my, my own experience with morality clauses, don't you? I objected to the first one I ever met. I do I. I'll bet you did. I'm under contract to Warners for 15 years, but we made a little compromise. Jack Warner said the morality clause would stay in effect the first seven years of that contract, and after that, he didn't think I'd be able to do anything much to violate the clause. <laughs> but seriously, Heather, when I said that all an actor owes his public is a good performance, I, I meant that he owes something to himself, too, his integrity. Can't be a good actor and compromise with that integrity. He's got to be himself, just the way he is. I don't believe the public wants him any other way. Bogey, I know that we don't ask writers, musicians, newspaper men, engineers. We don't ask them to be models of propriety. But an actor is different, Bogey. He depends on, well, he depends upon universal acceptance. Acceptance of his acting, sure. People want actors, not models of propriety. No, I think it's more than that. When people across the nation, including children, read in a newspaper that their favorite actor, one that they've loved for years, has gone out and done something which they themselves wouldn't dream of doing... You'll certainly admit that it at least puts a few dents in this glass house of ours, doesn't it? I think it's too bad, yes, but I, I think we can lean over backwards playing it too safe. Yeah, I, I believe that producers for a number of years have been too timid. They've been afraid that some gaudy behavior would hurt the box office receipts of their pictures. Well, a lot of people's paychecks depend upon those pictures, Bogey. Heather, I don't believe gaudy behavior ever hurt a picture. I'm glad to see that Sam Goldwyn feels the same way. You know, people in this country, the... The public had her. They're, they're pretty adult. Just because a man plays a monk on the screen, they don't expect him to live in a monastery. As a matter of fact, I, I think they even like to see someone on the screen who might be just a little bit more glamorous than that John Doe down the street you were talking about. You know, Heather, that brings up my second main argument. Hollywood was built on glamour, and I think it's getting, uh, I think it's getting a little dull around the edges. Oh, Bogey, you don't really mean you want to go back to the days of the leopard skins. The white Duesenberg cars and the rose petal beds. <laughs> and the people still look back and remember with love and affection the days of John Gilbert, Rudolph Valentino, Jack Barrymore. Yes, and how about Ethel Barrymore, Irene Dunn, Esther Williams, Helen Hayes? Sure, they're, they're all nice people. Yeah, they're all so colorful. They've got glamour, too. And not because of any escapades. Sure, sure, of course. There's still room in this town for all types. I should think of the communists, you'd agree. Your bread and butter, isn't it? Of course, but I'm also a Hollywood citizen. So am I, so am I. Also our most rugged individualist. Thank you. You know, that's what we need more of, Hedda, in acting and, 
Everything else in the world. People who stand on their own two feet and say what they think. Act the way they themselves feel they should act. This is a country where people can be themselves. Okay, let's be ourselves. Say, uh, have I got time to ask you a question? You sure have. Fire away. Well, how do you got glamour and, uh, and you use it, too? Why, that's mighty sweet. I'm a woman, too, and I used to be an actress. Used to be. You always will be. And you're not afraid to show off a little individualism, either. So here's my question. Why do you wear those silly hats? Oh, that does it. Goodbye, bogey. The big news about Elizabeth Taylor is not that she's expecting a baby. She's not. But that she and Nikki Hilton are happy at last. Joan Davis, the well-known comedian, isn't feeling funny these days. She's being hard-pressed for heavy losses she suffered at the gaming tables in Las Vegas, Nevada. President Harry Truman heard from his experts before taking off for the South Pacific that he can expect five new faces in the Senate and 20 new ones in the House. Shelley Winters is protecting herself in the clinches. She said if she was criticized for showing up at the premiere of Harvey with Dan Daly, well, she'd swear it was all arranged by the studio as a publicity stunt. This week, just as the American Legion rolled into town, we rolled out a red carpet of our own for a new musical show which the Legion backed, titled Red, White, and Blue. Leroy Prince, who's produced some fabulous spectacles for pictures and Broadway shows, did the same for this. And when I got to the theater opening night, he was there waiting for me. Hedda, let's go and watch from backstage, huh? Fine. You know, Hedda, this isn't just another show. It's for the Legion's Child Welfare and Veterans Rehabilitation Program. And when we finish here, we're going to tour the entire country. Uh, who's on stage now, Leroy? Uh, Larry Storch. Larry Storch? Oh, you mean that boy who got his start in the Navy? Then started hitchhiking to New York and Stanley Davis and Elon Packard landed him right in my office? Next stop, Cyril's. Is that really how he got here? Sure. Uh, oh, here, uh, let me get that door. Hey, listen. Listen, he's going one of his impressions. Thank you very much. You know, I, uh, it's amazing when you go shopping. I, well, I shop for characters. Now, here's the thing I must tell you. I was flying from, it was Houston, Texas to Hollywood. And I'll never forget it. There was an old timer on the plane next to me, just strapped in a seat, just chewed his cut all the way, just stared straight ahead. Oh, we, we finally landed at the airport and I talked to the old gentleman. I said, howdy, Pop. I said, uh, your first time up? He said, yep. I said, you're going up again? Well, he says, I ain't saying yes and I ain't saying no. <laughs> he says, I'm just saying maybe. <laughs> I says, was you scared, Pop? Well, he says, I wasn't scared. Of course, he says, I never did put my full weight down. <laughs> but, um, and, of course, I mean, Texans are very wonderful people and very proud. And I was talking to a Texan a couple of days ago. says to me... I hope you remember the Alamo <laughs> and how 187 Texans single-handed stood off the whole darn Mexican army. I says, yeah, boy. What about Paul Revere, boy? He said, you mean that coward that ran and called for help? <laughs> Well, here's a, here's a story I like to hear myself tell. <laughs> but a Texan that I know of was hauled into court by his little wife, and she wanted a divorce. So the judge read the charge, and he said, Well, now, let's see what we have here. Assault and battery? Blasphemy? Mental cruelty? Hmm. What do you say to that? 
big Texan looked up and he said, Why, shucks, ain't nobody perfect. <laughs> the judge says, Madam, I award you your freedom and $50 a month for the next 10 years of your life. He said, You know, Judge, you're not a bad guy. Shucks, I'll throw in a couple of bucks myself. <laughs> you know, there's a good chance, there's a good chance that our show... Uh, may go to England, and I'm very happy about it. The English are very shy, you know, and very conservative. Have you ever heard an Englishman uh, broadcasting a prize fight? Here's a thumbnail sketch of an Englishman doing a prize fight. <clears throat> so, Paddington Higgins, would you take over? Thank you very much. And uh, good evening to all of the boxing fans all over Britain. Uh, here we are at the ringside at Wembley Stadium. It is, it is a glorious night in the typical British crowd. We're waiting uh, for the bell to sound. There it goes, and uh, we're off. Splendid. <laughs> <laughs> Splendid. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> oh, my word, I wish you could all be here to see this. <laughs> my word, he's, he's hit him upstairs, hasn't he? And now he's hit him downstairs. This other chap over here doesn't seem to like it, though, but he's had a bit of revenge and his punch just broke a, ter a terrific crack to the nose and it looks like it is blood. <laughs> But I can tell you, I... Oh, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Somebody seems to be down. Somebody's definitely down. We can't see from here. We'll let you... I know the boy. And he's getting up, too. Oh, isn't that brave of him? <laughs> what was it... What was it... Tipling once said about courage? In some far-off corner that is forever England. Let me... No, no. He who goes into... Hive... He... Well, it doesn't matter now. He's dead, anyway. So... <laughs> There's excitement on every opening night, but there was added excitement for Red, White, and Blue. Because this wonderful show for such a fine cause was born in our own town, but it will come to your town, too. Wherever you live, watch for it. Jeanette McDonald, sometimes forgotten by Hollywood, is still tops in New York. Her Carnegie Hall concert is sold out. Darrell Zanuck will fly 14 critics from New York to London to cover the premiere of his picture, The Mudlark, at the command performance. But we won't see it until next year. Though Joan Blondell appeared at the New York opening of Call Me Madam with ex-husband Mike Todd, she swears she will not remarry him. She did the same swearing before she married him in the first place, but she did. When Nancy Carroll took over for Jean Muir on the Aldrich Family radio show, it was reported that she received many threatening letters from communists. That's a new switch. When John Houston gave a party for cast and crew of the Red Badge of Courage at the picture's wind-up, some married couples said they couldn't come. They couldn't leave their children, John said. Well, I'll get babysitters. They did, and he paid a bill for $110. <laughs> I met a man the other night who's made news every day this week, and will keep on making news. He's 29 years of age and comes from Dawson, Georgia. He was executed by the Nazis in 1945. Yes, the German firing squad riddled him with bullets. He was left for dead, but he refused to die. Villagers found him, hid him, nursed him for 48 hours before his troop reached that area. He spent the next 14 months in 27 different hospitals, and after 17 operations, made an amazing recovery. His name is Earl Cox, Jr. Two days ago, he was elected National Commander of the American Legion. And the day before he left town, I went down to the Biltmore Hotel to have lunch with him. We talked of many things. Sorry we ran past the hour, Earl. But with good food and such interesting conversation, what woman thinks of time? It was a pleasure, Helen. We've talked about so many things, and I've learned so much that... Is there something uh, in particular you want to ask me? Uh, 
I see a gleam in your eye. My mother gets it sometimes. You're a very dangerous man, Earl. You understand women much too well. Oh, I don't know about that. As a matter of fact, well, haven't you a message to America after all your work in this convention? And I have. We of the American Legion have long admired the courageous battle you have waged in behalf of Americanism and against communism. The American Legion is pledged to work hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder with all of the patriotic fellow citizens who are capable of sensing the danger that now faces us. If we can make our people realize that these are grim realities and not merely images that some of us dreamed up, we shall weather all of our difficulties and continue to live in peace and happy world. We must resolve to keep America spiritually upright, materially strong in order to deter those who are now plotting its destruction and overthrow. Your program will become a great American institution. I am happy indeed to salute you on behalf of the foremost association of fighting men and women confederated together in the ranks of the American Legion and to wish you continued success and Godspeed. Thank you, Earl. Audie Murphy, another great soldier, flew to Texas last night for a special job with the Army. Just before leaving, he told me he hadn't been told the nature of his work, but hoped he would be sent to Korea, where his old division, the 3rd Infantry, just landed. Audie is not in the Army. He belongs to a Texas National Guard division. If it's ever activated, Audie's automatically back in service. But until then, he's a civilian. It could only happen in America. When Betty Hutton goes to her hometown Detroit next month, she'll be accompanied by her mother. Betty will entertain in the theater. But her mother will be entertained in the Chrysler plant by the ladies of the assembly line on which she used to work. Henry Fonda and Susan Blanchard have set the wedding date for January. The Harold Lloyds had a new kind of visitor the other day. Mildred met the young man on the second floor, Harold on the first. They greeted him pleasantly, thinking that he was a friend of their son. He was in the house about an hour, and when he left, even the gardener waved goodbye to him. He took several hundred dollars and some jewels with him. <laughs> the sweetest sound in the world for an actress is supposed to be applause. I don't think so. In Hollywood today, there's a friend of mine, a star in her own right, with a great big scrapbook full of loud hand claps. But I don't think Helen ever realized how sweet applause could really be until now when the nation is applauding not her, but the work of her son. The actress's name... Helen Broderick, the son, the great big six-foot-three Broderick Crawford, the Oscar-winning star of all the King's Men and Born Yesterday, destined to be one of this year's biggest pictures. So I went to visit a certain home in San Fernando Valley. And when I got there, the proud mother of one of the best stars of the year opened the door. It must have been pretty obvious to Helen Broderick why I was there. Hello, Helen. Surprise, Hedda Hopper. I know. You've come to show me some pictures of your grandchild. <laughs> what? Well, you always do. You know your purse is simply bulging with them. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it showed. <laughs> I'm a grandmother, too. And with pictures. Come on in, Hedda. Helen, by the sheerest coincidence, I do happen to have a snapshot of Joan you haven't seen. But that's not the generation I came to talk about. Well, I know, Hedda. I've been kidding. Isn't it wonderful about Broad? Last year, the Academy Award, the Film Critics Award. This year, was born yesterday, and heaven knows how many more awards. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for Broad. <laughs> you know, Helen, I think it's safe to say now that Broad is at least a minor success. 
He might even go conservative and say he's on the crest. He's in the chips. He's in clover. He's in the kitchen fixing the sink. <laughs> oh, Bron. Come on in here. with company. Company? Is the kind I got to put my shirt on for? Broderick, come in here. Oh. Oh, Hedda, it's just you. Gee, I thought it might be somebody. <laughs> Informal is the word for my son, Hedda. Well, <laughs> I could think of another word. Oh, Grandmother, you here with more pictures of... It's already, already been through that. It's about you, Broad. Well, I've got my fingers crossed. We've been through that, too. Seriously, Hedda, the way things happen in Hollywood, I never count on anything. Do you know how many parts Broad was in and out of before he made his big hit in All the King's Men? Well, for a while there, I ran the gamut of pictures from B to B-. minus. But, Broad, after your fine work in the stage starring as Lenny and of Mice and Men... Well, sure, but a guy can't go on doing them sensitive parts forever. <laughs> Broad, I'm sure Hedda would be very much interested in Born Yesterday. Don't you think she'd like to hear something Oh, from... now, wait a minute, Mother, will you? Hedda... As a fellow grandmother, do you believe children ever get too old to recite for company? I certainly do not. Hey, Broad, you're overruled. You know the scene I like. No, Helen, wait. I know Born Yesterday's a great picture, but I think this particular time of the year, 1950, calls for a particular speech. One I'll never forget. Uh, what do you mean, Hedda? Well, Broad, in a few weeks, people all over the country will be going to the polls to vote for the candidates of their choice. It's a great privilege and a grave responsibility. And I remember in All the King's Men, you had a wonderful speech about politics. Oh, I know. Broad's big speech at the barbecue. I'd love to hear it again, Broad. I think it has a lesson for every voter and, frankly, every candidate. Okay, Hedda. Mom, would you set the stage for us? Well, in All the King's Men, Broad plays the part of Willie Stark, a man who grows to love power and who is eventually destroyed by it. But you remember, Hedda, at first Willie is young and full of ideals, but the, until the bitter day he learns about the politicians who have nominated him to be governor of his state are really using him as their tool. They really know he hasn't a chance. Willie has just found that out, but he still goes ahead with a speech, but not the one he was supposed to make. Quiet! I'm not going to make a speech. Hey, you tell him, Willie. Well, I am going to tell you a story. It's a funny story, so get ready to laugh. Get ready to bust your sides laughing, because it's sure a funny story. It's about a hick. A hick like you, if you please. He grew up on the dirt roads and the gully washes of a farm. He knew what it was to get up before dawn and get feed and slop and milk before breakfast, and then set off and walk six miles to a one-room slab-sided schoolhouse. Oh, this hick knew what it was to be a hick, all right. He figured if he wanted to do anything, well, he had to do it himself. So he sat up nights and studied books. He studied law because he thought he might be able to change things some. He didn't study that law in any man's school or college. He studied by himself at night after a hard day's work in the field because he thought he might be able to change things some for himself and for folks like him. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. He didn't start out thinking about the hicks and all the wonderful things he was going to do for him. No, he started out thinking about number one. But something came to him on the way. How he could do nothing for himself without the help of other folks. It was going to be all together or none. That's what came to him. It also came to him with a powerful force of God's own lightning back in his home county when a schoolhouse collapsed because it was built of politics, rotten bricks. It killed and mangled a dozen kids, but you know that story. The people were his friends because he bought that rotten brick. Some of the politicians down in the city, they knew that. 
So they rode up to his house in a big, fine, shiny car and said as how they wanted him to run for governor. Oh, they told him, and that hick, that hick, he swallowed it. He looked in his heart and he thought in all humility how he might try to change things. He was just a country boy who believed that even the plainest, poorest fellow can be governor if his fellow citizens find he's got the stuff for the job. Well, those fellas in the striped pants, they saw that hick, and they took him in. Now listen to me, you hicks. Yeah, you're hicks just like I am. They fooled you a thousand times just like they fooled me. Well, this time I'm going to fool somebody. I'm going to stay in this race. I'm on my own now and I'm out for blood. I'm going to stay in this race and I'm going to win. And as I drove back to the office, the thought I've had for a long time became a conviction. A great actor giving an inspired performance does much more than just entertain us. He makes us bigger people and better citizens. No, Willie wasn't afraid. But the average American today is filled with fear. Fear of Russia, the atom bomb, old age. Even youth, that period of bravado in the human span, is skeptical of the future. That's not America or the American. There's been too much talk about being taken care of from the cradle to the grave. This nation was built on the theory of individual liberty, on the premise that success or failure was up to us. And this way of life prevailed successfully for more than 125 years. Then came World War I, Depression, War II... Now we prepare for a third. And the average American feels helpless in the face of this. It's too big for him, he wails. So let the government do things. That's where he's dropped the ball. For what is government but the people? Their voice. And why should we drop the most successful way of life in the history of civilization? For this foreign ideology which says government is everything, people nothing. But we're doing it. That's why fear is strangling us. Why should we fear the Russians, the atom bomb, or anything? As a nation, haven't we what it takes the natural resources, technical skill, and the old know-how? Haven't we always survived any emergency? Can't we face another crisis with the same courage, sacrifice, and honesty which pulled us through before? Of course we can. But we won't if we become a nation of chiselers or a people who prize individual liberty but who won't get out and fight for it. Let's change fear to faith, like our fathers before us. We've got a million times more of everything than they ever had. But they had faith, and they weren't afraid to tackle their weight in wildcats. Let's get onto the faith highway. Then we'll have government for the people and by the people that will not perish from the earth. Next week, NBC will again bring you Hedda Harper with an exciting new musical talent from Hollywood's nightlife. A visit with a public figure prominent in today's news. Dan Durier, with whom Hedda will argue about, of all things, love. And the star of Sunset Boulevard and Union Station, William Holden. Good night, everybody. Portions of the preceding program are transcribed. Leroy Prince was impersonated. Next, your hit parade on NBC.